0: Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh My dear brothers, sisters, friends and the foes out there Welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host, Didi Hussein. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to remind all the avid podcast listeners that you can find this show on all the major audio platforms and if you're watching via YouTube, remember to click subscribe to the Fire Pillars channel Today's guest is someone who has been hot on the press recently um, He's a dear friend, brother, advisor um, someone who has contributed to Five Pillars editorially um, for many years since our inception. He's an activist, he's a GP by practice. He has written articles in many publications and that's none other than Dr. Abdul Wahid, the Executive Chairman of Hizb al Wa alaikum assalam. wa rahmatullahi wa bro. How are you? Alhamdulillah, how are you? Was that intro okay? It was a bit of a strange intro. Yeah, half the press.
1: I think Half the press.
0: Well, it's good. That is kind of true.
1: Three weeks in a row. How is that going? Alhamdulillah. Why can I say Alhamdulillah, except Alhamdulillah in every circumstance.
0: Yes, it's uh, it's going. Why is it that whenever something pops off domestically mm. or abroad, but also domestically, there's always a conversation about banning HT. Mm. Why is that? We I mean, we saw that in the wake of 9-11. So then the wake of 7-7. We saw that in the wake of Woolwich. Mm. So then the wake of when ISIS announced their fake caliphate. Mm. We see that whenever there's a major... Uh, incident domestically or abroad and um, there's always a conversation about banning Hizb We know that Blair tried and failed, Cameron tried and failed. Why do you think that's the case? So Bismillah rahim alhamdulillah,
1: salatu wassalam ala rasulillah. So I, I think um, part of it is we are um, a pain in the neck for them. I mean whether other people think that or not, I think we really are. Uh, we say what they don't want to hear. Uh, we become a good uh, um, um, th- way for them to distract. In fact, not just us, but generally, this whole debate people have seen, Muslims have seen in the last three, four weeks, about hate marches, extremist calls on the street. How do you deal with this? How do you- It's a massive distraction from what's actually happening in the world. Yeah, there's this genocide going on in Gaza, backed by the British state, And instead of addressing that, they choose to address the people that are challenging that, yeah? So in part, it comes from that. We are amongst those people who are challenging that. And just like with the big marches that they've been, they've distorted what actually happened on those days to make it look like something it's not, yeah? Um, Aside from that, you do have two other elements, I think. One is there are hardcore in the British state who are really neocon, anti-Islamic, and they for them it's almost like personal. I feel that people like the Michael Goves of this world, it's like, you know, for years he's been like crying out for this sort of thing. And it, it feels like for people like this, it's like this is unacceptable to have a Islamic group calling, albeit peacefully, for something that he cannot abide. And then the other side of it recently with this conflict is you have the kind of the pro-Israel lobbyists who like are looking for, again, you f- taking anyone who challenges their viewpoint, and magnifying things that they say, distorting things that they say, in order to try and silence their voices. So mm-hmm. I think you have a, a confluence of these things. When these events get very emotive and stuff like that, yeah, we are amongst the people that the target. And we're not the only ones, aren't we? They've, they've gone for the same thing. You've seen headlines about preachers giving khutbas mm-hmm. when they're saying this, saying that. And, and you see charities that are supporting Palestine. And this is the way it's going, this is the way it always goes after such events. Unfortunately, what we do see is a ratcheting up of this rhetoric and policy after such events. They they look to do this to change policy ultimately. Since 9-11, 22 years, since 7-7, you have seen this incremental uh, escalation in harsh policies, trying to silence political expression, try to demonize Islam, policies in schools, in mosques, charities, organisations, heading more towards a France trajectory. Um, But Britain's a different country. And so they've got to overcome other traditions, other voices, other criticisms, other concerns uh, to France. So you never see them progressing as quickly as they can in France. But they're always looking for an excuse. And that's how you have to see these attacks on the Hizab, basically. I mean, look, you know, the British first tried to ban Hizbut Tahrir when we were first founded back in 1950s in Jordan. Okay, oh, why I say the British, because the Jordanian regime was a puppet regime from day one. And they had John Bagot Glub, Glubb Pasha, mm-hmm. as their, the, a British military officer, as their main defense and security advisor in Jordan in those days. And he wanted to ban Hizbut Tahrir back in the 1950s. Well, John Bagot Glubb is dead. Yeah, and Hizb ut is still active in <laughs> Jordan, in most Muslim countries, and in, in most countries in the West as well. So we're still here, and John Bagot Glove is not. And inshallah, we rely on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to continue
0: his dawah because that's how we see it, basically. In terms of why this always comes up, is it to do with the fact that what you're actually calling for? Or is it because they are test, test using the Hisp as a litmus test to ban or censor things less than that? Why is it specifically the, the Hisp? whenever these incidents happen it from an organisational point of view? Yes, they're not the only ones, there'll be others, there have been others. There seems to be a consistent pattern, yeah. uh, at least in the UK. We aren't an easy target for them in the sense of
1: actually taking serious action. Because ultimately, whatever the rhetoric, whatever the muck they try and throw at the Hizab, we are, since 1953, an Islamic political party that is bases our methodology on Islam, we restrict ourselves to political and intellectual actions only. So we are not a fighting group, we never will be, we never can be according to our understanding of Islam. Islam doesn't give us the permissibility for this group to be a fighting group, okay? So when you are talking about an organization like it be, organization like ours, it becomes very difficult for them. They have to try and fabricate an excuse okay because actually we don't fall into any legal categories for them to ban so hence they try and invent terms like extremism hate speech all this stuff which is basically a term for things they don't like brother Abdullah Andalusi once said extremism is a secular word for heretic Mm -hmm. so if the in the secular religion there are certain Caliphate, red lines. Sharia, jihad, yeah, ummah. There are certain red lines for them in the secular religion. And if you violate them, you're called an extremist. Okay, that's what it... But there are certain policies of the British state, of the Western states generally, most notably about the Zionist occupation of Palestine. Yeah, certain policies that... If you if you violate those policies, you are an extremist. So they have to try and fabricate these, these labels. But what they realise is that there isn't an easy legal way of making these stick, not reliably anyway. And to ban a non violent organization would really be a massive thing. I can't think of an example in Britain where they've done that. And if they change the laws sufficiently to encompass the Hizb, well, frankly, they'll be taking out a lot of people who are non violent political organizations and maybe even some who end up, you know, even some of these environmentalists, animal rights. Uh, some of these people, you know, they, they, they do believe in direct action in a way that we don't actually. So you'd be taking many of them out. Pile action. Yeah. You'd be, you'd be taking many of them out. So I think we've, we've become like a real pain in the neck for them that they can't handle it. And if they do, it will be a massive own goal. It will be, it will be as damaging to their way of life that they claim to have in terms of Freedom, free expression, these kind of things. It will be as damaging to that as what they did in Iraq and Afghanistan damaged the perceptions of their views on human rights, democracy, and stuff like that.
0: But when it comes to, it, they don't care. Sometimes they'll just, they don't, go, they'll they just don't. go ahead. So I guess a million march for Iraq. Yeah. Uh, it happened. A million marched for Palestinians today. Yeah. It's going to carry on. But you know, they it, they in some respects they
1: don't care. But you know, if they still want to call out Putin for being an autocrat or uh, or MBS, Mohammed bin Salman in the Saudi state for being being an autocrat and silencing any opposition and stuff like this, or the Iranian regime, it doesn't make it easy for them if they're doing the same sort of things as them. Yeah, it doesn't. So they Mm -hmm. have to keep one eye on that. And that's one reason they talk about all this kind of fake, oh, you know, we have to play by certain rules, by international law, this. We have seen in the last month them them and their allies breaking every single international law, yeah, in, in the most heinous way. Uh, and they expect everyone else to obey it. So yes, they can break their own laws on free speech, free expression and stuff like this. We see, you've seen it in the last uh, few days, yeah? yeah? Uh, Where, you know, where you say something as a journalist, as an opinion former online, and you get police visiting you for saying it. Detectives. Detectives, Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and... You know i i wouldn't be surprised if those detectives are kind of going to your house thinking what the hell am i being asked this is stupid i'm supposed to be solving crimes he seemed like to yeah i'm sure seemed like and what are they what a waste of their time frankly mm. you know
0: this specific uh conflict the war on Gaza, the genocidal war on ghazza um you've been in the media attention as as though the his uh due to a protest that was held uh by Hizb tahrir I think it was the first one that was held. Um there was a journalist called Abu Tahir Khabith, um, who was doing this kind of undercover uh work, investigating mm. into you, turned up at your workplace. But let's let's talk about the protest first. Yeah. Because I guess w- the reason why it's so important because in light of the the Hizb's protests, there was further clarification mm. from the Met mm. about flags. Mm. What flags are banned? What mm. flags are not banned? And they actually, they actually tweeted that the black shahada flag mm. is is not a prescri- a flag not of a prescribed, prescribed group. There was a TV interview which we were talking about a couple mm. of weeks ago or last week ago, but they were actually talking about uh, what jihad means mm. and jihad means mm. different things mm. to different means mm. struggle. Mm. Who? What was that interview we were speaking? So it was about? on
1: the radio. So I I just want to say to my, the, the 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 viewers out there. So. Uh, We organized two demos on the same day, standing demos outside the embassies of Muslim countries, uh, Egypt and Turkey. We had a very clear message, which is that a state-level military massacre of a civilian population demands a state-level military intervention right, to rescue those people. Right, that is how you can encapsulate what we said. If this was another country in the world, another place in the world, they'd be talking about NATO or the UN or whatever organizing a military force to rescue those people, right? No fly zones, all this kind all of, of stuff, e- uh, economic sanctions Emburgers, on the, you embargoes, you name everything me. it would be like. Sanctions, that, yeah. everything. And yet, when it's the people of Palestine, it's as if Muslims can't say we have armies we have trained military we have official armies whose job it should be to rescue civilian population like this and intervene or liberate palestine right so So, liberating so if
0: i may okay Okay. so
1: uh, let me finish my point so so we went outside it was very clear the banner the banners were like rescue the people of palestine or rescue the people of Gaza." okay um actually we did a lot of due diligence on what our placards would say, what our banners would say, what chance we were going to be asking for or calling for, what the speeches, the content of the speeches, so that there would be no ambiguity about this message, right? And guess what? There was no ambiguity about the message because even though one guy in the crowd, after somebody, after one of the speakers said, what is the solution? and priming the crowd to say armies to Aqsa, armies to Gaza, as, Some the, say, jihad. as the, somebody said jihad. So even though he said that, the police, the CPS, specialist counterterrorism officers of the police, public order officers of the police, special language experts of the police who are there, and on the radio a, few, a day or two later, the government's own reviewer of terrorism legislation, Jonathan Hall KC, who viewed the footage of it, all said, number one, no offences were committed. Number two, it was very clear they were calling for the army of Egypt to intervene to rescue the people of Gaza. And number three, jihad is a term that has many meanings, and it can mean that, all right, it can mean the army going in. So they all understood it like that. Now, right-wing media whip up a furore, as I say, uh, on that day, just as they did for the March Uh, the bigger march where they said one guy was there with a black flag and people were chanting river to the sea and they changed the story to suit what their agenda is to support the Zionist massacre right in, in Gaza they changed that story we have to see that how it is but it was a very clear call and I would say it is the call I've seen and many of your other viewers will have seen from people in Gaza who are who are wondering and saying that Arabs have betrayed us the Muslims have betrayed where us. Are the rulers where are the rulers where are the armies yeah and and they're not talking about the ordinary Muslim on the street. They're talking about the people who have the capability of rescuing them doing nothing. And they're not talking about NATO either. They're not, and, and they're not talking about NATO they're either. About NATO. And also in the Muslim countries, the ordinary Muslim on the street is also wondering where they are. I mean, we've seen we've seen uh, celebrities on Five Pillars. You yes. shared celebrities in Egypt who normally have nothing to do with politics. Speaking out in a regime where Abdul Fatah Sisi is the head basically saying where are our armies it's a disgrace why yeah. do you got weapons for? why, yeah, why so, are you appealing to why are you appealing to people in the english and, language and the guy is putting his neck on the line by saying that right so for us to add that in, in other countries outside where we have a a clearer voice and a better ability, an ability to use social media or even invite the media from Muslim countries to carry that message. I don't think there's an issue with that. Um, but they th- that discussion about what the meaning of jihad was was great because I, I refer anyone to us on the Today programme. They brought Dame Sarah Khan, a uh, person <laughs> yeah. who I know you've engaged yeah. with a lot in the past, yeah, the who, who came on first of all and said, oh, I think this is outrageous. This should be banned. The law should be changed. Of course, of course she does. you know, jihad doesn't, jihad, you know, calling for jihad on the street and streets of London. And then this KC, Jonathan Hall comes on and says, well, no, actually, no, the presenter comes on and says, well, actually, you know, jihad does mean different things. And she then backtracks and says, "Oh, oh, yeah, 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 jihad. Just, oh, I'm sorry, you're right." And then the KC comes on and basically says, "Yeah, look, the message they're giving is very clear, right? They aren't. Co- In fact, they specifically said individuals shouldn't go. Yeah, this is not a fight for individuals or even groups. This is a this is a fight for people with the capability to rescue them, and that is only really a professional official army." So, whatever the likelihood, whatever people think the the appropriate, you know, the likelihood of this happening, this is the Sharia demand, okay, this is the people, if you see a munkar, change it with your hand, who has the capability to do that? Not you or me, not not even a, a group of fighters. Yeah, who has the capability? So we address the people with the capability to do that, right? From a rational human geopolitical perspective, what is the solution to a massacre on a civilian population, a military intervention to rescue them? So if this was Ukraine we were talking about, if we were talking about Ukraine, that Germany, that France, that the EU, that Poland should put their troops in, put their troops where their money is, where their mouths are, Yeah, in terms of helping the people of Ukraine fighting an aggressor, would anyone say that this is an issue? They wouldn't. Mm -hmm. They absolutely would not. But when it comes to Palestine, when it comes to Gaza, when it comes to the Muslims, we are out of step with Western foreign policy on this. Whereas if we were saying the same thing about Ukraine, you'd be in line with Western foreign policy, which is why you're going to be demonized, because they have said this Zionist occupation, it is a vital interest for them. I mean, I I think if your viewers haven't seen, there's a fantastic interview on the web with Robert Kennedy. Robert Kennedy, is that right? The Robert Kennedy Jr. Yes. The the senator who's a presidential candidate. And in this interview, he's asked why America should defend Israel. And he says what we know, right? He said, it's like having an aircraft carrier in the middle of the Middle East for us. right? It defends our interest in the way even an aircraft carrier in the Middle East can't do, right? From day one, first of all Britain and then later America saw this occupation as their representative of their colonial interests in the Muslim world from day one, right from 1917.
0: But we've seen this kind of language very apparent recently where they talk about it being a, a, a civilizational outpost, an outpost which represents the Western values. They, they don't even hide this anymore. And, and boy, is it representing their values yes. because their values mean that
1: they can kill who they want with impunity from yep. the international law that they imply on every single
0: other country in yep. the world, yep. basically. But how would you then counter the concerns of the ordinary lay non-Muslim, yeah, who be like, well, fine, we we concede to your points about the double standards of Ukraine and, yeah. and and Palestine and so forth, but ultimately you're not just calling for the rescuing of the people of Gaza. You're talking about the elimination of the Zionist entity. You're talking, I'm talking about Hezbollah when they're talking about, oh, Muslim armies come rescue you, armies to Aqsa. They could even say, well, why are you sending armies to Aqsa if it's Gaza? Then he's rescuing. Ultimately, what you're calling for is a jihad military To liberate Palestine. To liberate Palestine from the armies of Muslim-majority countries. So ultimately, you're talking about the extermination of Israel as we know it today. So we're talking about the removal of the occupation, the the removal of
1: an oppressive, people say apartheid, I agree with that, an oppressive system that has for 75 years oppressed the Palestinian people, stolen their land, It kills when it wants to. It steals when it wants to. It takes hostages when it wants to. Yeah. It's done it with impunity pretty much. And we're talking about the removal of that. We are not talking about the removal of Jews from the Holy Land, right? Because actually what we want to see that replaced with is an Islamic system, all right? And we are talking about an Islamic system which in the history of that region, the time from Sayyidina Umar liberating Palestine to the time of the Crusades and then the time of Salahuddin liberating Palestine to the time of World War I, 1917, when the occupation happened first, right? These were the only two periods in history where Jew, Muslim, Christian could live with their rights respected, their religions respected, security, safety, harmony, getting on with each other. I know an uncle in my local area whose family are originally from Haifa, who remembers pre-Nakba how his uh, family would go and see a Jewish doctor there. Why? Because they were in the neighboring village and like, th- they would like take food to them and stuff like that. And they were, wh- who, when people talk about they were Palestinian Jews, basically. They were they were in the time of the Uthmani Khilafah, yeah? And, and you and I know, we have a really proud heritage in Islam. Very proud. Of, of rescuing and saving Jewish people
0: from persecution. Umar the Salahuddin Ayyubi, muslim spain andalus ottoman, ottoman uh, yeah it's there yeah and, and even history. with
1: the ottomans even with the ottomans sultan abdul hamid knew knew there was a political agenda yeah so he did not transgress yeah, the rights. yeah he did not transgress the yeah he did save people and sometimes he saved people in a way that they can settle but they can't settle in this particular place mm. yes like because he knew what the agenda was but but the point being that they And and we know from history that those Jews who were settled in Palestine at the time of the Nakba, at the time of the British occupation, when the European Jews were being shipped over in huge numbers, changing the demographic of the region, they weren't particularly welcoming these Europeans Mm because they're kind of, for a lay audience, they're kind of Middle Eastern. They got they got the same values as their neighbors they were culturally they, they were jews but culturally muslim culturally culturally where those these, people where, where these were europeans yeah, even even now when you go to palestine if you meet palestinian christian palestinians don't refer to palestinian christians or muslims they're just like they're just like palestinians basically they don't refer to them but when you meet them you won't you won't you know you want the, the way they have manners table manners hospitable hospitality manners not like in terms of swearing at people and you, crude lewd behaviors you won't see that right and, and the Jewish people who settled there, you wouldn't have seen that then, right? You get Europeans coming there. And those of us that live in Europe, we know what like kind
0: of like- Even then partying, drinking, dressing in a particular attitude, way. Attitude, yeah, mindset. Yeah, look yeah. at
1: the demo, look at the counter demos that we yeah. saw, yeah? Look at, you know, when they showed that on the TV. Te- Alhamdulillah, that's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Beautiful. saved the dignity. But you see the contrast of orderly people walking with families, families feeling safe, to the others not even the police feel safe not yeah. even the security forces feel safe yeah awesome. so that's what you're importing over basically that's what you are bringing to that land to the holy land to the changing the democratic so even even the settled jewish population did not welcome that change right and they saw something they'd never seen before which was hostility right the british occupation between 1917 and 1948 Change the demographic from about 80,000 Jews in Palestine to about 750,000 Jews in Palestine. Okay, you're talking about a tenfold increase in a 30 year period uh, of people that, and, and what happened in that 30 year period is that the Palestinian population living there, the Arab population, Muslims, Christians, suddenly found that their land was being taken they were given different levels of rights under the British mandate it was a declared thing of british policy that palestinians couldn't organize politically whereas the jewish population the immigrants were allowed to organize not just politically but militarily, militarily as so well. by 1948 you had a uh, an, a non unified untrained arab population militarily who were against a unified politically organized armed opposition, yeah? They'd rigged the the system such that there was never gonna be a fight, fair fight from day one. So why am I going into all of this? I'm going into all of this, why? Because to say the liberation of Palestine from the occupation, to equate that with like some kind of massacre or ethnic cleansing or something like that, it's just not right. Actually, if people say you wanna see peace in the region, I think it's the only way peace has existed in the region. Yeah. Under Islamic governance. Under Islamic governments. The alternative that people talk about, that sincere, sincere people, secular minded people talk about is like a one state solution, one democratic state where everybody democratic is- Democratic for a representation. Demographic for a representation. Now, look, um, what I will say about that is, well, apart from the fact it's not Islamic, yeah, which is obvious to, to those of us that care about these things. But what I would say about that is, you've got yet another tiny, Nation state in the Middle East to I'd, to argue that will be independent of anyone it would not be one of the things about an Islamic state is you actually would be independent of these economically colon, politically colonial powers around the world that have their own agenda right so you're telling me you're going to be more independent than Lebanon do you
0: think the Ie do you think the Islamic Emirate of course is independent yeah,
1: well uh, well that's a different that's a story for a different podcast but I think I think I think I, think I, I don't want to go into that but but what you can see is that the States in the region have never been independent. That's a fact. Yeah, never been independent. And to this day, they're not independent. You tell me that even a nationalistic nation state like Egypt would accept the risk of. If it was just a nation state that was not Islamic, they didn't care about their brothers and sisters in Gaza. They just were looking for purely selfish nation state interests. Do you think they're going to accept the risk of two million refugees coming across the border without doing anything? Of course not. No nation state would do that. So this is proof that they're not independent. It's absolute proof that they are puppet states. So a secular state of Palestine, demographically represented, would would just be another. Nation-state weak nation-state in the region that is controlled by other people. If you, it's hard to it's hard to see the Zionists ever accepting that they are so full of their own supremacy in the region. Yeah, it's hard to see that they even accept a Lebanon-type model. Mm. Yeah, where they have a, a a a share of different roles in the society, mm. but. Uh, that's why I don't think that would work apart from the fact that it's not Sharia compliant, yeah. Um, So if you're talking about peace, if you're talking about people living together side by side, if you're talking about stopping the bloodshed, it's the only solution I can see. Yeah. And and the other thing I'd say, which I have said many times before is, I actually don't think there would be much of a fight right? When people talk about, people have said to me, oh, so what, you're calling for a military intervention, do you want a wider? World War World War Three, w- World war III, a wider mm. escalation of the war. Honestly speaking, I really don't believe there will be like, because when you saw how many people were thinking of leaving after the 7th of October at the airports there. Well, right? you said a
0: bloody nose, you said that they received a bloody nose. I did say that. And I, I believe that because resistance,
1: look, in that level of occupation, 16 years of living in internment, in a camp and seeing Palestinian people break out of that and and show the fragility of this occupation i think is a welcome bloody nose all right i I'm, civ- I'm not celebrating the killing of any civilian i'm not celebrating the killing of any child or or dis- dishonoring of any woman yeah if 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 and it's a big if
0: yeah because it's a justifiable
1: if. It's justifiable justifiable if.
0: As in, as in what they're claiming is
1: true. Yeah, if, if what they're claiming is true, remotely true. No Muslim should defend that. Yeah, no Muslim should defend that. But the problem with, I and mean, this is a slightly different subject, but the problem with Muslims condemning this. that condemnation is a political game every time a muslim comes out and condemns something that actually happened or was said to have happened it gives those bombers in tel Aviv more legitimacy yeah and and uh, and everyone needs to see this it's not a fair game it's used as political ammunition against the palestinian people the people of gaza so you it's not right and in fact it also diminishes what's been happening to them for 75 years 16 years in gaza no clean water no decent food malnourished children not allowed to go you said why are we talking about armies to aqsa and not to ghaza aqsa is like a mile an hour's drive away from Gaza. these two million people can't even go and pray in al-masjid al-aqsa right what kind of like you know what kind of like uh, life are you saying is acceptable for them what is a proportionate response for them to respond to that? You know, this guy, Piers Morgan, he's always saying, oh, I don't know what the proportionate response for the Israelis to the 7th of October. Well, what's a proportionate response for 16 years of internment? What, you tell me what is a proportionate response. Sitting in the suburbs of leafy suburbs of London, we're supposed to tell people what's a proportionate response for them, yeah? On that day, me and most other Muslims, I think, will have got their news from social media footage, right? Something is happening in Gaza. They've broken out of a 60... Palestinians, by the way, not not any group, any one group or another. Or fighters from another country. Or fighters from another country or anything. These are Palestinians. literally Palestinians. And we saw ordinary Gazans celebrating this, breaking out of this cage that they've been in for 16 years, right? Uh, We saw videos which have been distorted by the other side to show fighters saying in arabic this is a woman this is a child this is a sick person in bed our 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 honor uh, says we can't, we can't harm these people. Uh, and you see this twisted to like, we're now, you know, we're now gonna kill these people, like as if, as if that's what they did, yeah? Uh-huh. So when people ask you to condemn and why did you say this is a good thing and that and that, I think most people that saw this as a good thing are not seeing this as the, a good, it's a good thing to kill civilians, because I don't think any, anyone is saying that or would say that, and if it did happen, they certainly won't condone that, yeah? But they're also not gonna go out of their way to say this is a bad thing, because they know how that is used and has been used against the people of Gaza as a justification for all that's happened to them since, and indeed in the West Bank now, yeah, and indeed in the West Bank, because we we have to remember in the West Bank, you know, the way the Zionists have stolen land, they have three modus operandi. One is what's happening in Gaza, a massacre that is going to drive people out like Al-Nakba did in 1948, right? One is what happens in the West Bank, which also happened in 1948, where armed settlers go into villages, threaten to kill them, or actually kill them, and scare other villages off, so they evacuate the land. And one is what happens in what is called Israel, meaning 1948 occupied, where territory. they literally they steal house by house, neighbourhood by na- neighbourhood, neighborhood, like Sheikh Jarrah. Yeah, Actually, a lot of that's happened in Hebron as well, but they literally, they, they will target a house, they'll say it's not fit for living in, you need to renovate. When the people leave. go to renovate, they don't give them the license to renovate it, they force them to leave, then they bulldoze it, and then they give it to some settlers. Yeah, and, and this is actually the three modus operandi, and people are not willing to call out what's happening in Gaza today, or in the West Bank today, when it's
0: clearly just a naked land grab. Let's let's talk a bit about perhaps some misconceptions that people may have about Hezbollah in terms of their beliefs, their ideology, um, related to Gaza and Palestine, but more broadly speaking. For example, it's not uncommon to hear reports or read articles calling the organization anti-Semitic. Yeah. Um, does his Hari hate Jews? No. And I think, I mean,
1: I, 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 this is an easy accusation to make. And I guess the ammunition they try and use is statements that emanate from Arab world, Arab world where they are in the theater of war, where people use the language of war. Yeah. So people here, you know, actually you know when people here use the language about Muslims of ragheads and stuff like this in, in Afghanistan, or in uh, the context of uh, German Nazi Germany that using word like kraut and stuff like this, mm. or even the rhetoric of Churchill talking about fighting on the beaches and on the streets, yeah. He doesn't mean that you don't mean these things literally. These are the language of war, mm-hmm. right? So they will take those statements, which is in the context of a Zionist occupation of Palestine that calls itself the Jewish state. All yes. right. So for decades in the Arab world, they use that word in their context synonymously. Yep. Called, yeah. Yeah. They use that word synonymously. Okay. But when you look at, at what we say, what I've said, what I know our heritage is as Muslims, uh, what we know from Quran about Bani Israel and even even what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us about Bani Israel, they're good and they're bad, is actually meant to be a lesson for us, isn't it? It's not meant to be for us to point the finger and condemn them like that it's act to be these are the believers these are the people that allah favored and honored these are the people that allah sent his revelation to and his prophets to and if you behave like this well we, we are which we are every bit as capable of doing then you deserve the censure that these people were given right and not all obviously not all of them were censured our anbiya alayhimusalaam many of them came from bani israel Absolutely. yeah so mm-hmm. you can't be anti-semitic in that sense and even when you look at the issue of those of us living outside of uh, of muslim lands does any do i know any muslim that thinks it's appropriate to insult jews here or attack jews here
0: i don't what Honestly. about my what about my position that was in the media lately that i believe that every flight from israel yeah that lands in the muslim countries yeah. should be met with protests
1: so i would say to that dili um I, I when I saw those videos as well, I shared them. No, not, well, not the I, not not Latin videos. Yeah. No, I shared the when I saw the first videos, I shared them with a slightly tongue in cheek, slightly serious comment. Well, I guess there's no normalization in Dagestan then okay. was my comment. Yeah? Because what we've seen in the UAE, what we've seen in uh particularly in UAE Bahrain, even though technically Morocco and Sudan and these other places have started normalization. It's really the dirty rulers of the UAE and these kind of countries that are really like getting this free movement. Normalization with the Zionist occupiers of Palestine is unacceptable. Do you agree with my statement? So I think I do, except for one thing, which is if anyone was genuinely leaving there thinking that they wanted to seek refuge somewhere else, they should be given safe refuge. What about- And and that's what I would, I mean, I, I would, you know, and and I think that's a, like you know it, it's not, but you I I think your point is about these are flights from a from an occupying country. You're yes. not talking about Jews. Yeah. And I think you know when people there could be Druze on that plane. There could be Arab yeah, Muslims, yeah, Israelis could be. in that plane. I, I, yeah. So I think I think the issue the issue is and you know this line of what is anti-Semitism, what is not. Yeah. I mean I've seen placards that were held at the demos, which I, for the life of me, the Guardian cartoonist that got sacked that goes, So his yeah. cartoon. I, For the life of me, I was looking at that thinking, what is the anti-Semitic caricature that he's, it looks like an extremely political cartoon, which is saying that like these, they use the term surgical strikes, don't Mm -hmm. they? When they're doing missile fire. So Netanyahu is the surgeon, and his surgery that he's doing is a shape of Gaza and he's wearing boxing gloves. So to me, that cartoon basically says
0: he's a reckless, he's a
1: reckless, wolf. clumsy, deliberately you, clumsy yeah. surgical strikes. Yeah, it's, an, it's a political attack. you can't be surgical with boxing gloves. You can't be surgical. So, so it's hard. To, so you will get these. You will say, I mean, nowadays you're told that even if you say something anti-Zionist, you are basically anti-Semitic. IHRA. Yeah. yeah. So I don't believe that's right. I don't believe that's right. I believe that Muslims who live outside that uh, theatre should be dealing with people, whether they're Jew, Christian, atheist, Muslim, Hindu, anyone else, you should be dealing with them according to what Sharia says, which is respecting uh, their sanctity of life, honour, religion, property etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Living them with goodness, wishing well for them, wishing for their guidance, wishing, uh, wishing them well in, in daily life in every way. Living them with them with the goodness from Islam. You don't cheat, you don't deceive, you don't you know this is the way we should live with people according to Sharia. So uh, bullying, intimidating, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, this is not right. But if you're saying me protesting on the streets is intimidating them when I'm not going through anyone's neighborhood or anything. Yeah, I'm not it's not like Northern Ireland where the orange order marches are going down a catholic neighborhood or anything like that. You're going through the streets of London, central London where very few people actually live. Yeah, when you're going to these kind of areas, these are all either diplomatic buildings or business what buildings is, whatever. Yeah. It it's too much actually and it's actually again, a double standard. We are told that when Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is insulted, that's free speech. And you and I have not got the right to be offended. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what we're told free speech means. Yeah. But as of this week you know Rishi Sunak brotherman are entitled to be offended by somebody calling them a coconut <laughs> yeah or 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 somebody else is entitled to be offended because they interpret something in a certain way which actually if you took a you know a random audience they probably wouldn't see it in that way yeah so we're used to these political attacks i can say confidently hand on heart there's no like Uh, anti-Semitism
0: in that way, in this organisation or its beliefs actually. So staying on this topic, you've you've presented a very, mashallah, a very convincing uh, case for how Muslims should carry themselves in the West, you know, uh, as per the Sharia, be just, be fair, be truthful, don't be deceitful and so forth. But non-Muslims will still look into this is ultimately an organization that's calling for a caliphate. Yeah. Now that word <laughs> itself, yeah. it, 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 it's a very jingoistic term. Yeah. It, ha- it has certain uh, associations, attributions. It brings back certain memories. Um, it's been used during the war on terror. Uh, we had an organization, a criminal organization that claimed to have established one in 2014. When people hear the caliphate, they're thinking, hands getting chopped of the thief, Um, men and women getting stoned for adultery, but mainly women, half dug up. Uh, We're thinking a map that's just getting big, 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 until the whole world, the entire region of the Muslim majority world, from Indonesia to, to Morocco, to the Caucasus, to Tanzania is covered. It brings back these kind of memories, and it brings back these kind of thoughts. It brings up black flags and ISIS and Guys shouting "Allahu Akbar" and that's the depiction that the average non-Muslim may have when they hear the term caliphate, yeah. because of what they've been fed, yeah. because of what they've uh, heard and read and listened to round the clock, especially during the peak years of the war on yeah. terror and ISIS. But they still see as these guys are pan-Islamic supremacists. They want an Islamic state, an expansionist Islamic state. They want it to encompass. The, the, the existing countries today and whilst Dr Abdul Wahid's here talking very pleasantly about how Muslims should carry themselves in the West and Delhi actually what these guys actually want is something a bit more sinister and actually goes against our civilizational fabric and hegemony so they are a threat irrespective of how well they're educated irrespective of whether they were born here irrespective of their forefathers fought for the British Army <laughs> these guys are enemy within They live amongst us, they were born here, but they want something else.
1: So I I recognise that since the ISIS perversion, uh, for an average person in the street, the word has become scary. Um, I also recognise that for those people who even before that uh, look at their own history and the distortions of their own history over decades, which demonise Islam, And they saw a challenge to their power in the world from the Khilafah in the past. um, That it's a power struggle, all right, and it's a struggle for power. And they do see that as a threat, not to life. Those people, the policymakers and and the establishment, you can say in the West, it's to it's it's an issue of power, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's they know it's not a threat to life. They think it's a threat to interests okay because the muslim world happens to be in the strategically most geopolitical interest financial interest energy interest all of of it all of it and they lose they're going to lose that they're going to lose that in one foul swoop if that happens right and they will fight for that and they'll blacken the name of islam and khilafah for, for that reason but you know uh elon musk Recently, talked about the golden era of Islamic civilization. Even Tony Blair used to talk about that once. Okay, when speeches. So, so when they, I think Barack Obama's talked about that. So, what are they talking about when they're talking about the golden age of Islamic civilization, where Islam led the world in science and in education and in health, and and and, uh, people could live side by side with each other in harmony and civilization, when Europe was in the Dark Ages, Muslim Spain, North Africa, the Middle East, the Caucasus, all these. But what are they talking about? The libraries. Baghdad the hospitals in Baghdad what are they talking about they're talking about khilafah they're talking about when islam was the basis of that society okay but so it's something they can't even deny they cannot even deny you know this week i was listening to a radio program about the barbary corsairs Mm -hmm. all right and the guys present all non-muslims presenting it and they were basically saying look these were north african uh naval uh mercenaries basically who were commissioned by the governments all right european countries did it too venice france habsburgs they all had their own corsets their their their, um what's the word for it uh privateers okay yeah private people who they were paid to do military stuff on the sea right but the barbaries were called pirates They were demonized as having no laws, uncivilized, barbaric, blah, 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 right? Whereas the same labels were not applied to them. And these academics talking about it were saying, actually, when the uh, Barbaries used to capture the Europeans and bring them into their place, they'd often capture them as prisoners of war and they would be actually enslaved. But those people actually would write. And when they were freed from their slavery, they were actually write, uh, you know what? It's much nicer over here. People are much kinder. We would like to stay. We don't want to, we don't want to leave. Some of them will become Muslim, right? Uh, and, and they were making this point. So actually the way they demonize Islam, we have know that over centuries, they've done that. They will keep doing that, but why? It's a power thing, all right? Um, yeah, I also recognize that people will see a lot of Hizmet rhetoric, which is criticizing Western foreign policy, Right, criticizing Western way of life, okay. I, I have problems with capitalism. I have problems with a system which is based on riba, which hoards wealth for the rich, makes the rich richer, poor poorer, colonizes other countries, lives off them like a parasite, leaves those people destitute, goes and invades other countries for oil and gas and other minerals and strategic resources, leaves those places in the West, has a track record of probably more wars in the time that it has been dominating the world, right? I have a problem with that. But the same Islam, the same wala wal bara for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that makes me dislike this and speak against it and these policies is the same wala and bara that actually motivates me to be good to the people around me to, to, to people I live around. To so be, do you, do you hate the average kafir? No, I, I try and be, I want everyone to live with goodness with each other. I get on with people. I take people as I find them. Who would, who would like, I want what's good for them in every way. In a world, in <laughs> a mean, world- You mean do you look at them like with disgust? No. and Like, like, like <sighs> the, the, the life, the values? No. I, I, no, because actually, you know, I see some of this quite up close because of my job. And, and you really do feel a lot of pity. For a lot of people, the way they, they end up with their lives in the way they are. Most people here uh, are, you know, they're, they're, their lives are not very secure. The average person is probably just one or two paychecks away from the street. Yeah. And if they lost yeah, their nice, job, nice. they didn't have pay. They wouldn't be able to pay rent. They yep. wouldn't be able to pay their mortgage. Yep. They'd be on the street. That is not a secure way to live your life, right? They don't welcome that their families are disintegrating, but they don't know how to stop it. Right, because they have a system in place which is promoting the disintegration of the family. And it's not just social, by the way, it's not just moral, Absolutely. it's also economic. Yep. Yeah, I, I know people who really love their parents, but economics forces them to move from Hull to London. Their parents then, they get settled, they get married, they get a job here, or they get settled in London. Their parents then get old, and there's nobody around to look after them. Actually, that's something I recognise that's happening in Pakistan today where where people go abroad to seek work and the younger generation get abroad, the older generation getting older and older and older, and there's nobody there to look after them, right? That's a capitalist problem. That's not a problem of individuals who behave like that. Yeah? And actually you will notice in, in the discourse of Hezbollah Harrier on lots of controversial things, whether economic, social, foreign policy, we talk about systems, not talking about individuals. Oh, it's this individual that behaves like this. That's a really dirty way to behave. No, 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 it's about, values. It's about
0: society. But you do say that as a result of the values that emanate from such a system, you get these social outcomes. You now, do now a non-Muslim reading this, thinking, "Hey, this is our freedom to drink and party, and 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 be intimate with everyone in private relationships. Who are you to tell us that our family setup has been breaking up because we choose not to marry, we choose not to have children, we choose not?" It's still that kind of disdain, isn't it? It's, it's an ideological, civilizational disdain for our way of life. So we can have a conversation about this. A right? respectful,
1: a one. respectful one, because I can say, look, I genuinely understand that you as a non-Muslim, secular person, liberal person, believe that the best way for people to live in society is that you individually, you should be allowed to do whatever you want to, as long as it doesn't directly harm another person, right? And you have to understand that my Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam taught me that the actions of individuals can harm the whole of society. When he gave the parable of a ship, and he said the ship has two decks, the top and the bottom, and if the people on the bottom, on the ship wanted to drill a hole one person wants to drill a hole to get water from the from the the underneath the ship don't you think that others would stop them because that person because the actions of the individual will sink the whole ship and isn't that actually fundamentally an ideological difference mm-hmm. that we have to discuss and we can discuss and I'm not gonna impose my view on you. So you're about liber-
0: liberal utilitarianism vis-a-vis yeah. the kind of collective thought of, collective the, Islamic thought of, of the
1: Islamic way of life. And yeah. I'm not gonna impose that thought on you. Okay, his Hizb- Mukarian is working for Khilafah. so we can have it now in, in, in the Muslim world. world. Not yeah. in not in Britain. I'd love you I'd love to convince you in Britain that you should live according <laughs> to Islam. Yeah become Muslim and live according to Islam. I'd love to convince you of that but that's different to convincing but you go and you colonize Muslim countries, you, you literally back who's going to be the ruler in those countries and the constitutions and the systems. You go and tell people what should be... When Donald Trump went to visit Saudi Arabia, his uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson then came back and boasted to Congress, we are writing their new education system for them. And then you see this changes in the Saudi Kingdom, right? The The liberalization of things, right? You export that into our countries by force on the people, by coercion on the people. We can have a debate here and everywhere actually about what the better value system is, right? Let's have that debate. We're up for it, very much up for it, yeah? But then don't characterize that as something it's not, because actually it is, in our view, it is about bringing goodness for people. It is about bringing the, the best for society and for all its people, and Islam came to bring mankind out of darkness into darknesses, whether the darknesses of liberalism or other forms of capitalism or secularism or communism, other for, uh, nationalisms, uh, Allah came to bring us out of darknesses into light to so people can live with some goodness. Yeah, And you know, Dili, there are individuals that see that. We know that because we see individuals like seeing how Muslims live, when Muslims, when we get it right and we live right and properly with people people recognize something good in this islam and individuals become muslim but imagine if you had uh, uh, a society which is actually functioning as it should be not abolishing all evil but creating the circumstances the environment where goodness flourishes much more than evil yeah a more sincere meaningful efforts preventative yeah. measures yeah and in fact you know in the past when famous people from the West went to Muslim world, and became Muslim, it was not, it was seeing the way people lived. Yeah, it was actually seeing that, wow, this is a different way of life. They haven't forgotten God in these societies, mm-hmm. yeah? They have some humility that they remember, we were created from somewhere and they remember him five times a day, at least, yeah? And ho- things like hospitality and stuff like that, just, this is something which, you know, you speak to people who have criticized the Muslim world today, and they'll say, oh, where's it gone? We've lost our values and stuff, stuff like that. Why? Because, well, because the environment is not there to create created to help these values thrive. The environment's been created to make people more selfish, right? I don't think the founding fathers of secular thought intended for people to be more selfish. I don't think the proponents of liberalism think they are trying to make people more selfish but you cannot deny the fruits of these Absolutely, things yeah, yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it should make you think when you see broken britain a broken system yeah you should make you think about how come the fifth largest economy in the world i think that's right isn't it i think it is the fifth or sixth fifth or sixth largest economy in the world has such a broken society yeah those thugs that are on the streets of london right who are angry about muslims about palestine i bet you anything most of them their anger comes from the to- the, 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 the government the top. policies they, they're, they're not they're forgotten yeah they are yeah they would think my parents were born here my grandparents were born here right back to god knows when 1066 and beyond and and my government doesn't look after me and that's why they voted to leave europe well guess what they're right their government doesn't look after them the trouble is their government does dog politics, which pushes the blame on Muslims, on and migrants, on, yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera, yeah, on homeless people, mm-hmm. yeah. That's the way their governments work. Unfortunately, they don't see
0: it. Why do they get fooled all the time? Because honestly, the, the the anger and the frustration of the average uh, English Caucasian layman or yeah. British layman, right, yeah. they would look at things to do with employment, migration, and so forth, the labor force, and, and things like this. And they, and they will ultimately be because of what they've been fed on primetime shows, you know, they blame Muslims or people of color or immigrants or migrants. And it happens perpetually, but really the lack of housing, the lack of employment, the lack of anything, yeah. you know, affordable rent, you know, you know, the, the welfare, so all that, that's not, that's not us. Can I tell you though, this is not, when people start blaming this on kind of white,
1: black, this sort of thing, they've missed the point. Um, this is not unique to the UK. Look, while this atrocity in Gaza has been going on, there's another atrocity going on, Excellent. Pakistan, right? Mm. Pakistan is basically throwing out people of Afghani origin, right? Uh, brothers. It's disgusting, it's disgusting. Why? Because it's a nation state, it's nationalistic. It has identified who's the first class citizen, who's the second class citizen and who's unwelcome, right? Based on the nation state model, right? So actually a lot of these guys here are affected by nationalism and across Europe, Right? It is the core concept, the nation state model, where effectively you think your nationality, your tribe should afford you some privilege over other people, all right? And they are not getting that. Well, Actually, and this is probably why we've seen in Europe a few far-right politicians who, when they start looking at Islam, attack it to attack Islam, they become Muslim. Yeah. Because they kind of maybe realise that Islam, in the uh, Islam rises above this. A very shallow, type shallow of tribalism. So you say, why do people fall for this? Well, why do people fall for Hasina in Bangladesh? Why do people fall for these criminals in Pakistan? You're right. Because so, people have, mm. generally, human nature is you will trust your rulers, right? You think, you, you, uh, most human nature is you make excuses for these Good people. or bad, they've got it covered. Or you know, you don't know how hard it is for them. Yeah, yeah, This is the kind of thing you hear from your auntie. So you're basically, saying, so, you're, so, so, like, so, what, so
0: what you're actually saying is that this issue of dog whistle is actually
1: present in the Muslim world it's, as well. It's present in the Muslim world. We've seen it in we've seen it in Turkey with the Syrian mm. people and the the Kurds Syrian refugees that. and yeah. the Kurds before that. Yeah. It's nasty. It's nasty. So uh let's be a bit objective. Bengalis and Rohingya. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. It's it's a it's a phenomenon and yet and yet, earlier in this podcast, we talked about the fact that when Jews were being expelled from europe, driven out of Europe, they were being welcomed, they were being welcomed into, into the, the capital, capital of the center, yeah. yeah and and that shows you there 's a philosophical difference in the politics, and that 's why we, as hisaria talk about of Islamic politics and Islamic change and try to get people to think differently about their politics. Because if you don't start thinking outside of that box that you've been confined into for the last 100 to 200 years, you are going to seriously find it difficult to, to, to connect with what we're saying. If you start breaking out of that, actually, you will start seeing what we are seeing and the potential for change in the world,
0: in the Muslim world especially. Let me ask you one more kind of misconception, or maybe a claim, uh, which has been levied at the Hizb- at the organization for some years now. And that is that Hizb acts as a conveyor belt. Fine, we concede, Abdul Wahid, that you're not a violent organization. And it's quite consistent within the literature and the and the organization's uh, pamphlets and lit- and all, all everything. We, we concede you're not a violent organization at least not until your objective is fulfilled then there will be there could very well be some, some there levels. will be no
1: violent organization then because even when the khilafah no, is established be the hizb the hisab is still m- mandated to be a political group it cannot
0: be a fighting group okay okay but the point is when okay. khilafah wa is established yeah.
1: it will be like any other state in the world it has its foreign policy it has its foreign policy part of that is diplomacy part of that will be defense and military part of that will be trade negotiations Fine. contract treaties Fine. stuff like that just like in the past you know you when when I forget which battle it was it was one of the uh European wars in the mid nineteenth century there was a the Council of Berlin, or the treaty, Crimea. Uh, it was Crimea, it was afterwards, there's this very famous picture of all these oh. European diplomats, Bismarck and Disraeli, mm. and all these, and there are Ottomans in there as well, right? You think the Khilafah didn't have diplomatic relations with other countries around it the world? Did, yeah. Of course it did, mm-hmm. right from word go, yeah? So we have our foreign policy, it's based on Islam, right? Those Muslims who think it's based on pragmatism, right, are wrong. Uh, uh, Sheikh uh, Muhammad al-Shaybani, Imam Muhammad al Shabani, the, stu- the famous student of Imam Abu Hanifa, wrote a book, Kitab al-Siyar, which is all about the Islamic laws, Sharia laws, about how Islam deals with other states, treaties, these kind of things, written like centuries ago, right? That those We have our own Islamic international law, which allows us to engage with the world, right? And in fact, we should... In fact, on those issues which cross borders, right, to do with seas and air and stuff like this, the Khilafah should be convening countries to to deal with these uh, uh, collectively, where they affect humanity collectively, rather than... Uh, with their own national interests, which is what we see today. So just saying on that point. Yeah. A um, oh, conveyor belt. Yeah, conveyor oh, belt, yeah. This like, is, no, first no, of all, this has been this has been refuted I know it by has. their by their own authorities here. But if you use that argument, if can you I, believe. Can, can
0: I present it in a different
1: way? Yeah, but I just say if you use this argument, then Keir Starmer is a conveyor belt to uh, Rishi Sunak and Suela Bravaman, who are in turn a conveyor belt to UKIP, or maybe UKIP is sort of kind of maybe more centrist than these yeah, guys yeah. these days, yeah, which is a, then in, a, a conveyor belt to the far right and extremists and Nazis, okay, all right? I think it, that's actually more of a, it, a, if, a, a, if, an honorable if you case. Believe, and, there's, by the, and there's, you know, if you believe in that kind of theory, then you would be banning the Labour Party as it exists today because it could lead on to the Conservative Party that exists today that could lead on to neo-Nazism, okay, that becomes violent and fascism. Okay, this is like a nonsensical argument right it that's but but it's been re- rebuked and rebutted, and I would say one other thing sorry, did you interrupt but i'm I'll lose my train of thought otherwise I would say one other thing about this uh, right if people are agitated about something right they see what's happening in Gaza, they see what's happening in the past, they're mm-hmm. agitated it is not that. Oh, either I have response A, and if that doesn't work, I'll go to response B. I that doesn't work goes to response C. Actually what you end up finding is that it's almost like a this is where the agitation happens. I can choose A, B, or C, all right? It's not that one progresses to the other. If I go to a kind of more secular approach, and that doesn't work, you end up having to backtrack to understand what we're talking about and there's Islamic political approach. Or to that leads to, that, to, leads to that. Yeah, that yeah. needs to, uh, you know, okay, I'm gonna go out and do something myself. It's like not that one leads to another. It's like people are presented with
0: different options. That's a very interesting point. So, so let me just see if I've understood that correctly. What you're saying is, things don't, not, they rarely act as a conveyable because once you apply one, if you, if you decide with one methodology, you have to actually go back to change to adopt the other you, one you have to kind of undo what's been done as to opposed change, as, as, well, as opposed as opposed to you don't like it's first to vote for corbyn okay. he ain't in jack so i'm going to join the Hizip. now that's not doing jack i'm now going to blow something no, up this, this is rubbish this idea this <laughs> idea is absolute nonsense it doesn't
1: actually work and there's no evidence that it's happened like that and it's not it's actually rather it's the opposite way around people are agitated and often and this is what. Honestly speaking, this is no disrespect to people that do believe in resistance and stuff, but w- w- people, uh, resistance groups, fighting groups have been infiltrated by agent provocateurs over the years. All right? they ad- themselves. So, so one of the reasons it becomes quite easy to recruit people who are neutral about things is because they're agitated and somebody says, here, come with me, do this. Yeah? Mm. Whereas, if I say, "Come with me, work for an Islamic solution, this complete way of change of life in the Islamic world, the Khilafah, which will offer a beacon of hope to civilization, yeah, which the shield for the Ummah, which will protect her from these attacks, yeah," then, then this is a different way of working. To, to if somebody doesn't believe, they're convinced in that, they almost have to undo that before they start getting into either secular politics or a fighting politics. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a different. It's a
0: completely different approach, yeah? Bringing the podcast to a close in terms of the concluding segment, I wanted to deal with questions and concerns that the Muslim community may have with regards to uh, the methodology or the styles of of the Hizb, right? Um, So first and foremost, when you, the the, the protests after the events of Saturday, the 7th of October, uh, is it that you're calling upon the Muslim governments to intervene, to rescue or to establish khilafa. Which one are you asking them to do? So we actually, our, our protests after the 7th of October
1: were very focused, calling to the armed forces in the Muslim world you are obliged, if you have the capability to rescue the people of Gaza, you are obliged obliged by Sharia to do that. Caliphate or no Caliphate. Caliphate or no Caliphate, you are obliged to do that, right? Um, Yes, they have another obligation, right? Which is if they are the power brokers behind the throne, right? They need to remove that power from behind the throne and invest it into changing the system. So you're calling for military coup? Yeah I, I, it would depend on the scenario in in the particular country but a coup could be one way and one of the reasons the hizb is often uh, associated with the language of coups is yeah. because actually since the 1950s right through to the kind of 1980 probably, coups happened all over the Muslim world. And that's actually, there were more reliable ways of changing government and changing, you know. And some of them were bloodless. Yeah, and more bloodless. yeah. And actually, you know what? People say, oh, is this likely? Is this unlikely? Uh, Brother Taji pointed out to me this week, really nice example he gave. You know, these coups that we've seen in like Niger, Burkina Faso, all these places. What are these? What are these except mid-level military officers who somebody in the USA or in France or somewhere has been giving dawah to day in, day out. And when the circumstances arrive that arise that they can change the system in favor of their sponsor, they do it. Right. So should we as Muslims not be giving dawah to military people officers where they might have an ounce of goodness in their heart so that in some stage in their life if they have the opportunity to change the system to something good that they will do it okay so this is not like uh, and, and people who have no hope in the armed forces i think forget that there have been in the last century examples of when the Muslim armed forces have done very good against what's been given by their government, uh, by the, their state um, commanders. Whether it's in World War I, Fakhruddin Pasha from the Ottoman army was told to surrender Medina and he refused. All right? He refused. He held out in Medina even when the war was officially declared over. He held out from, in Medina. Whether it's in 1948, Je- uh, Omar Ali, who was an officer in the Iraqi army in 1948 the the first war to liberate Palestine when the Arab armies laid down their their arms and, and s- surrendered and stopped the fighting after the Palestinians had been cleared out. Omar Ali led his brigade to take Janine and ruled Janine for some time, for a few weeks or a while afterwards, okay, going against the grain. Whether it's in Syria, whatever you think of the war in Syria, the conflict in Syria, what we did see was when the civilian population was attacked, and the army was asked to attack them, many Mm. middle-level military officers used their position to defend the people, not to attack the people, right? So these are unlikely scenarios, but they are very common. But one, they are the Sharia command. Two, they are possible. And three, if you don't think they're possible, it's almost like you're saying, because. I can't see how it's gonna happen. I don't see how Allah is gonna make it happen because I don't believe that me or Hizb al-Tahrir is gonna bring the change. I believe Allah's gonna bring the change. I believe that Hizb al-Tahrir, the Muslims in general, all of us have a duty to follow the command, to call for the right thing. I believe Allah will bring the change. The sunnah of Allah tells us that most of the time, his believers don't see how that change is gonna come, but mm-hmm. they trust he's gonna bring it, right? So if I'm just one of these naysayers that say, oh, it's never gonna happen, it can't happen, the Muslim world's a mess, actually what I'm saying is, because I can't see it with my human faculties, I, can't I don't believe, believe that Allah's gonna bring it mm-hmm. in my lifetime. And that's not right. That shows a weakness in your trust in Allah, not in uh, actually that it is possible,
0: yeah? So, um, is there a reason why the Hizb specifically protests when it comes to conflicts and occupation yeah. outside Muslim embassies, as opposed yeah. to, let's say, Israel or Downing Street or America, uh, where other Muslim organisations so, do? So them? we
1: wouldn't we wouldn't go to the embassy of the Zionist occupiers because we don't recognise that as an embassy, right? That's not a legitimate occupier. Uh, you could technically there's. Technically, there's nothing going wrong with going to the American embassy or the British embassy uh, to make a protest, to, make a, to, uh, to condemn, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't go there asking for anything because that would be like literally asking the one who is behind the occupation, begging them for something that they cannot do. I go, we go to the Muslim embassies, one, to convey what the Sharia demands, two, to expose these people because they are capable of helping that the muslim rulers are the real israeli defense force right israeli leaders
0: have said this oh
1: they they are they are the even this guy jeremy mcclellan the comedian he like in his latest his sketch on this he was very very sarcastic but he was absolutely right i mean the i've heard john snow on channel 4 news challenging the ambassador of saudi arabia so you know you speak against the I- israeli op- uh, actions in palestine uh, have you thought to use your oil bargaining power to stop this and he looked horrified he's like oh no we'd never do that and and the questioner was asking him but why would you never do that you have the ability it's mad when a
0: non-muslim journalist asks
1: the crazy ambassador, isn't it yes yeah Erdogan, yeah Erdogan. the more time goes on the more people see the gap between his rhetoric and his actions, okay? And uh, so we go there to call out these people. We don't go there begging for anything. We don't go there to ask Oh, You're begging the armies. You're asking the armies. We're telling the armies. We're telling them that's your duty. We're appealing to them to go in because we're appealing to... Look, I'm not appealing to anyone who is sold out. I'm appealing to anyone with an ounce of iman in their heart and if Allah carries this call to them alhamdulillah and if he doesn't
0: alhamdulillah uh, i've just been there to convey the message yeah so, so it's not necessarily a case of you're asking. the hezbollah Khalil is asking aid and assistance and intervention from the same regimes and rulers they're slamming and criticizing you're saying you're 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 exclusively i don't expect
1: anything from these rulers they go to the oic this week and they anyone who expects these people from 1948 onwards, these people, even when they intervene, they intervene for their own interests or the interests of their sponsors. They have never intervened for the Palestinian people. When people talk about, oh, but this war failed, that war failed, because these people never intervened to rescue the people of Palestine. They never
0: did that. Not once in 75 years. But just to be clear, any military intervention from the Muslim majority countries yeah. is better than nothing, surely? If they intervened to rescue the people, and genuinely, now this is a good
1: question, because what we've seen in the previous wars is dirty wars followed by dirty peace. So a lot of the advancement of normalisation yeah. has been has been after these, uh, these dirty wars, all right? but uh, So we need to be wary of that. But I don't want to prejudge Anything. So, if we see somebody move to rescue people, and by the way, uh, you don't think the United States knows this? Do you, you think they send two aircraft carriers into the Mediterranean just that, for, just, that's for, for Iran. just for some? You, and, and has Iran done anything directly? But, Nick,
0: but, but I'm just saying that the argument would be that it's not because of Egypt, it's not because of Turkey, it's because of Iran, it's uh, because of Hezbollah, uh, it's because I, of the, you know, I think, Iranian I think, proxies in Iraq. I think
1: they say it's Iran, and they also say the region is very unstable. Right? I have never seen some of the arguments that Sisi is using in Egypt to pacify his people, or pacify the armed forces, and even some reports of how military people are being locked up and stuff. I've never seen the like of that, that I've heard about that. The pressure in the Muslim world, that why after weeks of letting the Zionists massacre as many as they want to, why are they stopping them now? Why are they trying to put the brakes on? For one simple reason they know the pressure on the Muslim street will grow and grow and grow and they know they've seen the Arab Spring 15 years ago, uh, how fragile these rulers are, how fragile their thrones are, right? They They know this sort of situation has the potential to kick things off. They absolutely know that. Whether it is this or it's not this, Allah knows best. But they absolutely know This is a very perilous time for them, not just in in, in every single way. They know that they're already overstretched in, uh, in Ukraine. Right. They can't, I don't think they can manage two theatres very easily. If China decided to make a moon on, on Taiwan, I'm pretty sure they certainly couldn't manage to three theatres at once. Ukraine, okay. Ukraine, Palestine, Taiwan. Taiwan, I think Ukraine would come third in that. I don't believe that, I don't believe that, <laughs> you know, China is the bigger threat than Russia. Russia is a bigger threat to Europe, but China geopolitically is a bigger threat. I, I, I really think it would be, you know, Palestine, Taiwan and Ukraine. So In that order. Zelensky, you know, <laughs> uh, bye-bye, you know, it'll, they'll, they'll, you know, they haven't got his back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One of the things which is uh, associated to the Hez, uh, especially during the 90s, is some of its disagreements, passionate fiery disagreements with brothers from the Salafi Persuasion, um, with regards to the issue of Jihad. Right. So during the Bosnian uh, war and other times we've had individuals who left the UK to fight. You know, we know that there's individual efforts of uh, various faction groups, resistance groups, militia groups, whatever you want to call it. And there's always been this connotation, the stereotype, this accusation that the Hizb doesn't actually support these kind of individual efforts of defensive jihad. They mock it. They belittle it. Uh, it's either army or nothing uh, with them. What is the Hizb's position and your own personal take on these efforts? Palestinian resistance groups, the Syrian resistance, very Kashmiri resistance, the Bosnian resistance. These efforts uh, by non-state actors. Is there something? the organisation deems as a legitimate jihad? We don't say it's
1: illegitimate. No, we don't say it's illegitimate. Because um, if people are resisting occupation by force, um, then Islam legitimizes when they're attacked to respond. Right. Actually, what we say in places like Palestine or in Kashmir is that those people are actually take the rule of the ones who have been occupied, who have been captured, who have been imprisoned. So despite the fact they might do it, and it might be a good thing that they do it, uh, they're not obliged to, actually. The obligation doesn't fall on them to do that, but often they take that obligation upon, them, upon themselves. I never met somebody from Palestine who genuinely believed that the resistance is going to liberate the land. And I've met people from Gaza, even, who've told me that even the resistance groups there tell us we are not going to be able to liberate the land. Rather, we are just going to hold back the occupation as much as we can until today's Salahuddin comes and brings the forces to liberate the land. I've heard that from Palestinians as well. Yeah, so so I don't think there's an issue with this. I do think from a Sharia perspective and from an Islamic perspective, the last 30-40 years Jihad has become associated with groups and individuals. And for the preceding 30, 13 centuries, it's not that, okay? So something has happened in our uh, in our psyche which you can say is a secularization part of the secularization process just in the same way that some people see politics as being an a Sharia compliant nation state or a sharia compliant economy yeah capitalist economy yeah that 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 some of these absolutely legitimate resistance things uh Become seen how jihad is, right? As opposed to the way that Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala talks about it in the Quran, which is an army, which is part of the foreign policy of Islam, which is the same as the way that the the West has its armies that does its foreign policy bidding. Okay, Inna Allaha yuqatilu fi sabilihi Allah loves that you fight in the way of Allah in ranks. All right. When I think of that analogy. The only the last army of jihad I can think of is is the army of the Ottoman Khilafah. When you see those black and white photographs of them in World War One, because mm-hmm. they look like a proper army, yeah, fighting in a proper way, all right. And so um, that is how we should, as Muslims, should understand it. If if there is some other activity which people are doing good work groups or whatever, holding back resistance and stuff like that. Alhamdulillah, that's not like something that you want to belittle or or talk against. But, but surely we should come back to the original idea in Islam. Otherwise, you are missing the point and you really aren't understanding. Now, you aren't understanding how these things will work in the end. Now, there'll be people who say things like, for example, OK, but what about Afghanistan, right? There it was resistance that held out since 2001, and then the occupier had to leave, right? And that's true, and that should give people a lot of confidence that actually Allah can change things against the odds. But if your vision wasn't to change the system to Islam, comprehensively, i.e. caliphate system, if your vision wasn't that, then you are not going to be stuck like Afghanistan is, with facing the odds on your own as a nation state, even though you're an Amira, an Islamic Amira, you are, you, you are going to be like basically uh, stuck facing the odds on your own. Whereas when you think in Islamic terms, in Khilafah terms, in unifying terms, you don't think of one little region being like dependent on itself.
0: You actually- how, how, do you, how do you, I mean, look, people, someone will be listening to this and the idea is beautiful, but how does the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan yeah. Pra- practically look to even encompass or, or i don't want to use the term annex because annexation has a certain but how does it encompass further muslim lands okay, you could if, if it had such an intention okay
1: look so you know when you talk about this in those terms if if it if it would if it, if it, if it okay, let me just put it this way even if even if you had um a government in kabul that said it was there for the Muslims and the Islamic world, and it has a vision of how things should change, right? You don't think there would be a body of opinion in neighbouring Pakistan or in the Caucasus that would actually welcome that opinion? You don't think that there would be people and large numbers of people that welcomed that vision? There would be. Okay? There would be, okay? Mm-hmm. So by narrowing your horizon, you're basically shooting yourself in the foot actually. Right. And and by widening your horizon and calling for what Islam calls for, you create the potential for change. Okay. That's how that's the simplest way I can explain that. Are we, without, are we without, without without belittling the odds that they're going against and what they achieved? But and the, they've, just, they've so, achieved the, a the, fair the, amount. the whole the whole kind of thing of people going to Bosnia, people going to Afghanistan, going to Iraq, going to Syria, I mean a lot of the talk you would hear people talking about is uh, oh, I want to go and be shaheed. Yeah, shahada is not something that's in my control. All right, Allah. It's in of oh, Allah. I could be shaheed in the UK by just like Allah taking me with something, accounting a ruler, mm. and somebody knifes me or something. Yeah, I could be. I could be shaheed. I could go to a conflict zone and not be shaheed. Right? I could go for pride and 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 not be shaheed because you know. So, so when i used to hear like people like saying these kind of things i'd say to them you know look, look, what are you, what are you talking about even even when somebody goes to fight in fight like in palestine the fight, they have an objective they have an objective to repel the aggressor not to just go out and do and something die, yeah. so that they die mm. yeah these are emotional things okay and the emotions are built on some goodness okay um but in the end uh even when they worked so repelling the soviet union from afghanistan it didn't work because sincere people went to afghanistan it worked because they were being supplied with arms through pakistan by the, by the americans, americans okay yeah. and here is one of the risks of group jihad right whether in kashmir or whether in palestine is that they have to rely on External players, external players, and when those external players—and we saw this with the PLO, we saw with the PLO, we saw it with the Syrian, we saw it with the Syrian, we saw it with the Syrians. but 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 you know, we when I see some of the Hezbollah leaflets about the PLO, like literally, they would do attacks when Iran, Syria, whatever said they could do them, and when it was in their interest to Syria or in Lebanon or whatever, or Egypt, or whatever, when it was in their interest to like. Not do anything. Not do it. The, 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 the resources to do stuff would dry up. The, secure, the shelter they were given, the political cover they were given would dry up.
0: We saw that in Syria as we well. We saw
1: that in Kashmir. Yeah. After, after 9-11, the Pakistan, Musharraf ordered the ISI to stop supporting Kashmiri resistance. Mm-hmm. Right? The Kashmiri resistance stopped. Yep. It doesn't matter how sincere the groups are. It's a model which actually had a very obvious danger that you are... D- dependent on. So I think I'd like to see people thinking beyond that. And I don't say these things in a disrespectful way. Mm-hmm. But I think you need to lift your horizon and and look at it differently, I would hope, inshallah.
0: Yeah. Do you have any problem with waving the Palestine flag? Uh,
1: okay. You know, I really recognize that most Muslims that wave the Palestine flag wave it in solidarity with the Palestinian people. I'm not going to criticize them for that. Mm-hmm. All right when you understand things a little differently you'll understand why i don't wave a palestine flag Tell right us. we don't un- oh, number one i don't wave the flag of any nation state i don't wear a flag of pakistan i don't wave the flag of iraq i don't wave the flag of the syrian resistance yeah in that way yeah uh, flags are representative of a nation state the politics of the nation state is the highest loyalty is to that flag more than to allah more than to god that's the model of the nation state i can't accept that okay mm-hmm. um the second thing is um peculiarly of the palestine flag
0: the palestine flag the colors Oh. It represents the Arab caliphate. So so no, no, it was the Arab revolt. So the the British No, but the colours represent when they came to the Arab, when they came to the Sharif, they said, Look, the flag the, the Abbasid are represented, yeah. the Umayyad are represented, yeah. basically all the non who is the they, Dili? The, the British. The British. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the
1: British Foreign Office <laughs> proposed this to the traitor Sharif Hussein in Makkah, who rebelled against the Ottoman Khilafah. So the, the flag of the Arab revolt is almost identical to the Palestinian flag. I think the colours are just switched in yeah, one yeah, order. Sh- and yeah? the shapes. And label, the the yeah. shapes. Then thereafter, these colours became the colors used in the Arab, Arab nations post-World yes. War One. Yes. Then they became the colors associated with Arab nationalism. Then the PLO adopted it as the F- Palestinian flag of their symbol. So when you understand that politics, it's not easy for me to accept waving that. Yeah. Uh, but actually, you know what, I, d- I don't, uh, I know that most Muslims who uh, wave that flag are not doing it because they believe in nation-states, not because they believe in a secular uh, future for Palestine. Most of them are doing it because they sincerely love the Palestinian people, and they want to have some symbol of of uh, doing that. And I personally, it, it, I think it's the wrong symbol, but uh, it, you know, I, I, and masjid al-Aqsa is a better symbol for us, actually. All right, it's it's a better symbol for us because it represents the difference between Palestine and Kashmir. Both are Muslim occupations, both are 75 years old, both are uh, untold of oppression by the oppressors, untold of loss of life and land, blood of Muslims, lives of Muslims, both count. The difference between Palestine is that it is sacred land for us, it has a link to our Aqidah. Okay, and so if you want to represent something, then that is it. Other people will say, "Well, you know, I can't expect the Socialist Workers Party to get behind al-Aqsa, Yeah. <laughs> okay, they have their point. Yeah, but I have my point. Yeah. Okay. So I would say to them, invite the Socialist Workers Party to get behind al-Aqsa, Yeah, in the right way.
0: You know, whenever incidents like Gaza happen. Um, whether it be the Rohingya situation, whether it be the, yeah. the ongoing occupation of East Turkistan, Iraq, Afghanistan, the, the list is endless. You will find Muslims, you know, with good intentions, wanting to do as much as they're physically able to do yeah. within the regime, within the capacity and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. writing letters to MPs, petitions, mm-hmm. coordinated boycotts, um, protests um cancelling your tv license you know these kind of things what's what's your thoughts on these kind of things do you see do you see them as fruitless
1: you know what if i see any benefit in them i see the benefit for the heart of the person who does it that they are tying themselves to try and help their brothers and sisters in palestine all right so even if it were a fruitless task right, they think they're doing something, something to try and help. Okay. Um, So uh, I don't say that it's not well intended. All right.
0: Uh, Do you drink Coca Cola? uh no i i don't buy Cola. Okay. i don't okay, buy do you boycott any israeli products so I,
1: I i i if i see something is made in israel i won't buy it okay yeah i won't buy it but, no, you, don't, but you don't you don't actively go out to boycott something. i don't actually go out and tell people they should boycott things and okay. but you know again i come back to effectiveness yeah if if we all boycott those things i feel that's really good because you are delegitimizing the occupation all right you're you are you are stopping that normalization process in your own heart and amongst your own community. But when Turkey does defense deals, when Gas deals. Kazakhstan, Nigeria, Azerbaijan, all do energy deals, okay? When the UAE is doing its normalization with like tourism deals and all this kind of thing, yeah? What, what we do as individuals is in effect a drop in the ocean. And I, I don't say it's a meaningless drop in the ocean, yeah? But it's not the answer, all right? Especially when these other criminals are keeping them alive. What about keeping keeping the occupation alive, I should say? What
0: what about keeping the occupation alive? As an act for the sake of Allah, something I just want to do to help my people. Allah, Allah will reward an atom's weight of good, all
1: right? Allah will reward an atom's weight of good. We know that, all right? I'm a politician who's looking for real change, all right? So I don't want to really concentrate on delegitimizing these things, yeah? They're all, they're all style. If a style is halal, it's a style, okay? Uh, if I go to an MP and I say to them, please, for the sake of your secular beliefs, which we love, yeah, help intervene in Palestine. This is like me going to a priest and saying, please, for the sake of your Trinity, please pray for the people in Palestine, all right? It's not right, right? If I write an angry letter saying how dare you how dare you not call for a ceasefire this is something different i don't expect very much hope from that mp if somebody else does alhamdulillah okay some people will say oh these are fruitless you're wasting your time blah 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 People are not unified in one way. People have different levels of political understanding. We say, I'm, we say, I'm obliged, as as somebody, I'm obliged as somebody who's a Muslim, aspires to be an Islamic politician, to kind of raise the horizons and target people onto what really brings effective change. All right. and and not to lower the horizons. If they understand what I'm saying, right, and they want to do these other things as well. And obviously some of them, like charitable deeds and stuff, will be very good, yeah? But if they understand what I'm saying and they agree with that and they support that and they encourage that as well and work for it, and they want to do some other things as well, as long as those other things are permissible, Alhamdulillah, Allah will reward, if your intention is sincere, if the action is halal, Allah will reward you for that, yeah? Mm. But if people direct people into fruitless things, knowing they're fruitless just to keep them busy and say, oh, no, 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 why are you talking about this? This is too far away. Well, you know, if you have an aspiration to get to a destination, right, and you tell people to stay put, yeah, they're never going to get to that destination. Or if you tell them to go to another destination, which is shorter, they're never going to get to that destination. But if you agree that we have an aspiration to get to a destination, which is Rescuing the people of Palestine, liberating them from an occupation, re establishing Islam as a complete way of life to protect the Ummah and to bring goodness to humanity. If that's your aspiration, then at least start talking about that, even if you're doing something else on the way. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's how I see it. Yeah. I don't like to belittle things. And I do recognize in some of these things, particularly boycotting, I don't bro i my my kids were young and they used to travel to pakistan i used to say don't eat uh, don't allow them to eat mcdonald's right there's nothing in hizbut Tahrir culture or anything like that that says oh don't allow them to eat mcdonald's kfc hmm. yeah why why because i didn't understand this logic of muslims who like because they are denied mcdonald's in the uk as soon as they travel to a muslim country they want this really really bad quality food yeah it's not even a gourmet burger Mm -hmm. yeah they don't even want a nice gourmet it's just the psychology that i'm denied it right and i'm going to a muslim country and i'm spending my money to a franchise which is going to go back into the west and that's a good thing yeah so i i said like no i said no get get they can these Western franchises not in my not in my family, right? I never obliged that on other people. I never obliged. I never told other brothers, other you know, other families, or oh, you shouldn't do this as well. I just when my kids were, and now my kids are older, they're grown up. They can do their own thing, whatever they want to, yeah. Mm. But when there were my kids under my watch, I was like, no way, that's not right. I can't. I have to practice what I preach. If I believe global capitalism is a bad thing for the Muslim world, why am I spending money? like doing that in the muslim world but that is more for me my own principles my own it's not because i thought it's going to bring down global capitalism yeah (laughs) do you get my point yeah yeah. Yeah? and and so this is the same thing i think i will not buy israeli goods yeah and and just for your foes out there when you introduce the show yeah? yeah would i buy a smoked salmon bagel from from so yeah i would I I don't say there's anything wrong in going to a, a Jewish businessman here and buying something from them, right? I, people may say okay, but what if you know that person is a Zionist person giving money? Yep. You don't go into a shop and know what Someone. somebody's politics are, yeah? <laughs> yeah? You don't you don't necessarily know that and I would be I would be wary of assuming that about anyone, mm. right? Because actually it will backfire on you. People
0: will assume it about you. Absolutely. Yeah? Absolutely. Um Final question. Yes. To wrap up the podcast. Yes. I know Hizb has a rich heritage in Palestine. Yeah. You know, the founder yeah. Sheikh Taqiuddin nabhani rahimahullah, himself was Palestinian. He was uh, the maternal grandson of the great Ottoman scholar and judge, Sheikh Yusuf al-Nabhani, rahimahullah, who's celebrated and championed by uh, m- millions of people. Um, across the Arab Muslim world Um, what does that heritage actually mean to the organization and Palestine as a focal point of its objectives oh so I don't think
1: it being Palestinian his his heritage being Palestinian and many of the founding circle of Heza being Palestinian I don't know if that particularly has a big Resonance, but it was the Hezb was founded political party founded not just in Bayt al-Maqdis, al-Quds, Jerusalem, not just in that blessed city, but actually in al-Masjid al-Aqsa itself. Right. Um, So the the foundation of this party was from that blessed place, and our first office is actually, still, the building is still there, I've seen it with my own eyes. The first office of Hizmet Tahrir was in a building which is right opposite the Damascus Gate, Babul Al-Amud. So there's the Damascus Gate, there's a road going, you can cross still over, there. still there, there's a line of shops and the building there, it was apparently in the first floor, it's still there, the building, okay? Um, and uh, so that, that heritage matters a lot to me um, because of, I hope, inshallah, that its starting there was a, a sign of its blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, we're not nationalistic. Sheikh Taqi would never have thought himself as Palestinian. In fact, from from very early on, Sheikh Taqi was like, this is not a Palestinian problem. This is a this is an issue for the Muslims. And that is something we keep saying, right? And uh, our our brothers who, who are there in Palestine don't identify as Palestinian, but they have a rich heritage there, and, and they were they were very active and still are very active in Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa. In other places it is like Khalil, Hebron, our second Amir, Sheikh Abdul al-Qadim Zuloom, he used to give khutbah in Masjid Al-Khalil in Hebron. All right? And we have Imams from that Masjid who have been with the Hizb. Okay, so there's a rich heritage there. Um, Sheikh Taqi would have learnt a huge amount from his grandfather. He uh, was, was, was a celebrated Ottoman scholar. He himself was a celebrated scholar. He was not just a judge in Al-Quds. He was a judge in the appeals court. So the higher court, the judge that judges on the judgment of other judges. Okay. So he was a judge in the appeal court of Al-Quds. And uh, actually across Biladusham, al-Sham, across Syria, across uh, Palestine, across Lebanon, Jordan, and Egypt. He was a very well-known figure. He was not a small figure. He was a very well-known figure. Did he meet uh, um, Dr. Banna? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, if he did, uh, I, it's not recorded. I don't know that. Okay. I don't know that he did. Uh, he did meet other other people, uh, um, at f- well-known people. And there are many figures, famous people in the Muslim world who uh, have... Not maybe even if they haven't directly touched him, but he did. He was he was a very well known figure in his day as an Islamic scholar and a and a, and a significant Azhari person. Azhari, Azhari started this hizb when he's like in his fifties, uh, I believe. So a mature man who's explored things, done other things in his day. Half al the Quran at a very young age. Yes, yes, yes. And all the founders of the party were Ulema. And um, many of them were Azhari ulema. So they'd studied in Asham sham first and then gone to Azhar and then come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so they, their heritage is great. So the, their Islamic heritage was there. The, the start of that from the Blessed Land is definitely a blessing. All right. But we don't see that as Palestinian, actually, because. Mm-hmm the issue of Palestine was always an issue for Muslims and will always be an issue for Muslims. And you go to Palestine now and the people there will tell you, please come, because it's a Mus- it's a place for Muslims. Mm. It's not just for us. And they want Muslims to remember that this is our land. This yeah. is our city. This is our blessed land. And it was before and it will be again inshallah. inshallah. And we know inshallah it will be the capital of the Khilafah inshallah, in inshallah. the future. Inshallah, Abdul Wad, it was an absolute pleasure having you on. JazakAllah Khair Dili, and your
0: audience appreciate the time. JazakAllah Khair. BarakAllah Fik, the honour was all mine, my, my dear brother. Take care. Brothers and sisters and friends, I hope you all thoroughly enjoyed today's podcast as much as I did. I want to remind you all that you can find this episode on all three seasons and all the major audio platforms. If you're tuning in via YouTube, remember to click subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. Until next time,